Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Entangling Vines, Case 47 Buddha Straight, Ancestors Crooked The Buddha's teaching was straight. Why do the ancestors sing such a crooked tune? Please feel free to turn. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. On this day number six of the Golden Wind session. It is wonderful to see you all here. Fully embodying what the six days so far have stirred up in us wind, sometimes of course wind will bring up dust and blow the dust in our eyes. Sometimes we think about the teachings of the Buddha and the dust actually is gold dust. But when it ends up in your eyes it's no good either. So it's not just the personal dust that we have but also the dust of precious teachings that might get into your eyes when the wind blows hard enough. This is the first Tesho for the last six Teshos that I am free from the Mu jail. <laughs> the last six cases were all about Joshu's Mu. Now, of course, I mean, as soon as it's gone away, oh, I wish I could have talked a little bit more about it. But ultimately, even if you go from case 46, part 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, to case 47, it's nice because, of course, it was given away on day number 2. Mu is everything. So even this case, we will find Mu. It was day three. I miscounted. 
more. Everywhere. It was a warm day yesterday. It's a cool day today. And so it goes. In terms of the koans, just to give you a little bit insight, once one decides to take a specific koan collection, one starts at the top and goes to the end of it, all of them, no choice. What comes, comes. And it is a wonderful teaching because it's that teaching that goes beyond choice. No choice. There is no choice. Today is number 47. Next time will be number 48. Surprise. And that is a very important teaching in this practice. In life in general, I would say. We have been so fortunate here to hear directly from the heart of Mukhen Zenji on the first day. From Sōryo Roshi and twice from Hokuto Osho. All of this adds Dharma nutrition, let's call it Dharma nutrition, to the fertile field that we have cultivated through our own <laughs> rawness. You have to scratch up the ground in order for seeds to take hold and to be able to grow. And sometimes you, also, you have to water it, you know? Tears are the best water for Dharma seeds to grow. Don't ever be afraid to cry in here. I'm sure I've told each of you, but I'll say it again. In my own personal practice history, there was one point after maybe three years or so, and I was at a session, and I was ready to just burst out, completely dissolve in tears, snot, and all of it. And I didn't allow myself to do it. I knew exactly that I had a choice. In retrospect, not having chosen to just fall apart, probably because of fear. The work that ensued later, it takes years and years and years to work in different ways than to just be able to yield to nature and let the water run when it comes. So it's an encouragement to leave behind any kind of idea what a good sense student looks like. I mean, come, come on, look at us here after six days. This is not a good advertisement for photographic <laughs> evidence of this practice. <laughs> Wouldn't you say so? It's all Bodhidharma's fault. 
But the radiance that shines through us is quite different than in the first day. Even if our robes are so dirty now that we can just, without a hanger, stand them in the corner when we get to our rooms. What shines through is what's under the skin in the hearts of all of us who have spent this time. So it's a wonderful thing. The rawness is important. It's not said anywhere that this practice is comfortable. It's actually true that there will be some discomfort in the process of polishing ourselves, of letting go of things that we hold on to. If our fingernails are really deeply into the matter that we hold on to, it's not so easy to move on. It might hurt. And of course, when something hurts, we do at first recoil from it because our paramecium mind that we heard in a wonderful talk is just that way. It is not that we want to do it. It's just what nature has in store for an organism that we call a human being. We heard about the body scan, a wonderful technique, a wonderful thing to learn for awareness. And if you combine it with this practice, you end up in the wheel of fortune of pain. You will actually know exactly which of the parts that you have made connection with is hurting and you don't know which one is next. Even after decades of doing this, there's always something new. Last Rohatsuv, I would have never thought my ears were, would hurt from wearing the mask. <laughs> that, that was completely unpredictable, yeah. Raw on the top of the ears from the loops. It's something new. <laughs> so, but let's go into this case. It's a funny case. If you had a chance to look at the board, actually, the English, I mistyped in the end instead of a uh, question mark, there is a slash. <laughs> Why do the ancestors sing such a crooked tune? <laughs> <laughs> I think that was, uh, after all, I'm like, well, you did, you did well. <laughs> It did well. It just came out by itself. It's a very short koan. No ancestor is in here. The Buddha is mentioned. The Buddha is in our dedication. But it, it talks about that the Buddha's teaching, it's, it's translated in, in past tense, was straight. It could be any other tense, you know. Those of us here who read the Chinese in the original, they know there is no temporal indication in here. So it could be, is straight. Why do the ancestors sing such a crooked tune? 
I don't know if you have encountered it yet, but there is in the study of Zen and talking about Zen, there are, people say there are two different types of Zen. And these two types are Nyorai Zen. Nyorai is the Japanese word for Tathagata. And historically speaking, the, all those 27 people before Bodhidharma, they are in the Zen lineage. They were practicing Nyorai Zen, which is the Zen before Bodhidharma. And it's the Zen that is informed chiefly by the scriptures and teachings of the historical Buddha. Sometimes certain Zen people look at it as less alive because it's scripture-based. The other type is called Soshi Zen, ancestral Zen, the Zen starting with Bodhidharma and what came after a more direct, more alive way, shouts, sticks, twisted noses, all kinds of ways of studying Zen that is not related to using scriptures. And this koan kind of makes this distinction. The Buddha's teaching was straight and the ancestors' teaching, well, why, why do they sing such a crooked song? Saying like Beethoven wrote a wonderful song, but this person singing it is out of tune. What happened when Bodhidharma came? Why did Zen change? Why did uh, Soshi Zen come into existence. What is the innovation of Bodhidharma? Where are the entrepreneurs here? The Zen innovation of Bodhidharma. Kyoge Betsuden. Kyoge Betsuden. Transmission outside of formal teaching. Furyu Moji or Furyu Monji sometimes. Read. Transmission outside of scripture, apart from scripture, not based upon scripture. Jikishi Ninshin, directly pointing to the human heart, the human being, the human kokoro. And all of that leads to the realization of one's Buddha nature. Kensho Jobutsu. Kensho Jobutsu. To see one's own Buddha nature. That is said that Bodhidharma came up with these four descriptions. It might have been Nansen. It's very difficult to say who it was, but it's referred to. So this Kyoge Betsuden Zen is different from the Zen that was practiced before. Of course, both have the word Zen in it. So there is a commonality here. There is the core in it that this practice and the teaching of the Buddha 
have in common. By now I don't say Zen Buddhism anymore. It's just too long. <laughs> and why label it? After Zen you can put whatever word you want to put. Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance. <laughs> right? Did anyone read that? Yeah. The first book in German they had was Zen in the Art of Archery. Eugen Herrigel. Yeah. I read that book so often, the pages fell out. Zen is very, very, it's a more a modification of or an intensification of whatever put behind it. And in case of our lives, Zen practice is a transformation for our own lives with what we bring to it, not with what we acquire through it. So any thought of acquisition any thought of spiritual capitalism is ill-advised. Fukasets, that what cannot be taught. And the third character, the setsu, is the same character that we have in the first half of the sentence here, the, which is read as toku in Japanese, is saying, teaching, preaching, it cannot be preached. In Zen, we go a little further and we say fukashiki, which means the unthinkable. The unthinkable, that which can be experienced, but cannot be conceptualized. Now, of course, this saying it like this bears in it the danger that we look at it as an object. The unthinkable and the unspeakable are, of course, as real as anything that is thinkable or teachable, because the teachable and the thinkable emerges out of the unthinkable. This idea of transcendence often gets in the way when we think that Zen practice is here, I stand in the dualistic field and now I have to transcend it. This is exactly the image that Hakuine Kakuzenji uses with the person standing in the water, crying in thirst so imploringly. But our human nature is that way because we are oriented into one direction. You know which one? That way. Everything of interest on a human being is that way. Yeah, the eyes, the nose, the mouth. We speak forward when our locomotion is forward. So it's not a surprise that we go into the direction that we see clearly. But what's behind 
what is behind it is equally important. It's also noteworthy that what we take in from the front exits in the rear, and we'd rather leave it behind. So the organ that is actually able to smell that is diametrically opposed to the productive exit, let's say it that way. And that teaches us something also, of course, about how we are as human beings. You don't see it, ah, but you might still smell it. So we have to learn to connect to the back and to the front. Front is future, back is past. And in between sits this very, very thin layer of consciousness. So we think. So we think. Now, going back to the two types of Zen, Nyurai Zen and Soshi Zen, there's a story that explains it a little bit. At some point in maybe the early 20th century, there was a monk in Japan who had studied all the sutras, all the shastras, all the Mikyo teachings, so esoteric Buddhism. So he went to Tendai priests, to Shingon priests, Jodo Shinshu, and he knew everything that was there to learn. Even went to India to learn about the originally uh, written down teachings of the Buddha. Learned Tibetan to see the Tibetan versions. And of course read Chinese and all of it. But when he was finished, he was still unsatisfied. And his last teacher said, well, you have to go to a Zen monastery. There you will find what you cannot acquire through what you have done so far. So he went. Of course, Zazen was very difficult for that person. Full to the brim with knowledge. Well, is there anyone here uh, who kind of identifies remotely with that notion of becoming here full to the brim, ready to overflow, trying not to spill anything? Because it's also precious, right? We hold on to it like the golem. This monk was just like that. He knew it all. So sitting was very difficult, painful. And eventually he figured it out. Oh, there is the infirmary. I could just pretend to be sick a little bit. And I, they pull me out of the zendo and I can spend some time in the infirmary. He succeeded. He entered the infirmary with some pretense, sickness. And while he was there, there was an elder brother monk in the infirmary. Fortunately, one, the younger one wasn't sick at all, and the other one wasn't too sick either. So they got to talk to each other. 
the younger Asti elder, because he, his teacher, the Shike, the Zen master, had been pestering him with discerning the difference between Nyorai Zen and Soshi Zen, between the Zen of the Tathagata and the ancestral Zen. So what, what better than, well, here is a seasoned monk. Let's extract some information. Have you ever thought about asking somebody for information like that? <laughs> Never. So he said to the elder monk, can you tell me the difference between Neuraizen and Soshizen? And the elder monk said, oh, sure, I'll do that. But let's make a deal here. I heard somehow that you are a very well-read scholar of the sutras. And in exchange, actually before I tell you, may I ask you to give me an explanation of the Hanya Haramita Hridaya Sutra, the Hanya Shingyo, the Heart Sutra. Suddenly, not looking sick at all anymore. Of course I can do this. I will give you a lecture on it tomorrow, was the reply from the younger monk. So the next day they started, in the very traditional way, which is line by line. The young monk read a line and then came the explanation. Kanji sai bo sa. Explanation. Gyojin hanya haramita. And so it went on and on. Until they came to the section where it is. Shiki fu i ku. Ku fu i shiki. Shiki soku ze ku. Ku soku ze shiki. Form is shunyata. Shunyata is form. Form is no different than shunyata. Shunyata is no different than form. And it was a hot day. So the young monk was sitting there, and while he was going, he was fanning himself with a fan. And just as he was going on to the next line, the elder monk said, hold on, hold on now. Is that fan you're using, is that shiki or is that cool? So is that form or is that emptiness? And right away the scholar said, Ah, oh, it is obvious. This is form. This is material. The elder said, Ah, oh, okay. I accept your answer. And give me the fan. And he takes the fan. And then he says, So now I have shiki. Now give me ku. Give me emptiness. The younger monk was just sitting there, unable to say anything, to which the elder monk replied, This is Soshi Zen. This is the ancestral Zen. All you know already. That is Tathagata Zen. That is Nyorai Zen. That's how it 
was explained to this young monk, full of knowledge. That's what we are told when we come here and we go into a doksan and we are told not to talk about. Don't talk about Mu. Bring it. <laughs> bring it. And of course, what does it mean, bring it? Bring yourself. Bring your life. Bring your presence. Bring yourself as you are. There's so much thinking that we bring to the practice. Not only Buddhist thinking, but also identities that we have built up. Memories that we keep alive. And the zendo, the sitting, is there to help us to incinerate all of that. So when I, when I look around here, it is wonderful. And I think of Nyogen Senzaki, the, the pioneer, and his teacher, Yoga Kutsu Soen, uh, Shakyu Soen, who predicted it will take 100, 150 years to make Zen become alive in America. But just looking around, it is embodied that this is now a multi-generational practice. Multi-generational. It's wonderful. So when I have to speak to younger people, college age, for example, and they want about Zen, I usually I tell them a joke. And since I have the excuse that there are some younger people here. <laughs> I will tell you the joke too. So there are these two tiny little fish, barely a couple of weeks old, full of energy in the lake, maybe in Beecher Lake. And they swim around together. They like each other. <laughs> all day and they happen upon an older big fish who's just there <laughs> he looks at them and says how's the water how's the water the little fish look at each other and go on swim around. Half an hour later, they stop, they face each other, and one says, what the heck is water? <laughs> it's the same with Zen practice. Buddha nature and all of it, always in it, always in it. Just a belief of separation and the breakdown of the belief of separation is the, 
liberation from this self-inflicted slavery to fixated selfhood. Let's say it that way. On the other hand, what makes it difficult is that it is a natural thing to occur. It is a natural thing to occur. We grow up to become a person. We grow up to have a character that develops through our influences, through the conditions, if we want to speak in a karmic way. Of course. And we have self-consciousness. It's all natural. But where does it go off the rails when we hold on to it? Our egoistic delusion and attachment. That's what Tore Enji says in the Bodhisattva's vow. And it is singular, by the way. Yeah? Some people are very generous and put delusions and attachments in, in the vow. But he's just speaking about that one particular egoistic delusion and attachment. Believing in a self that is persistent. In a self that doesn't change. We are kind of, we tend to think in the realm of shiki, what we can see. And we invent ideas such as an immortal entity that will continue or places that one will go when that physicality changes. It's just trying to explain what happens when that physicality changes, when one dies. Of course, fall is one of the most beautiful times to see and to experience that death is not anything to be feared, but that it is just a transformation. We heard about the trees where the monks said, well, when they die, but actually they don't die. When the leaves fall, have you watched the leaves fall this week? I hope you have. Matsuo Basho, Soto Zen master and famous haiku poet, his death poem is written about the leaves. It says, Ura omise, omote omisete. Chiru Momiji. Showing its front, showing its back, falling autumn leaves. Beautiful, huh? Just falling, and the depth is only visible. If you have done some Zen practice, what is he talking about? Showing the front, showing the back, the falling leaf 
of suchness. The falling leaf of anicca, mujo, impermanence. The falling leaf of maybe getting caught up in dualistic thinking. A leaf has a front and a back. A person has a front and a back. That's dualistic thinking. What we have to learn about dualistic thinking is that it arises out of non-dualistic consciousness. So again, there's nothing to transcend. I have to transcend dualism. No, it's us standing up out of the water, right out of that ocean of non-duality. Non-duality doesn't mean the leaf doesn't have a front and that it doesn't have a back. It has a front and a back, but non-duality means when the front is showing, you know what? It's the front. When the back is showing, it's the back. Only when we think, ah, that is the front, there must be a back. Trouble starts. And the dynamic change between the different ways of looking at duality is expressed in the falling of the leaf in this poem. Ura omise, omote omisete, jiru momiji. Sun faced Buddha. Moon-faced Buddha. The Buddha's teaching was straight. The ancestor's song is crooked. Sounds like a criticism. The Buddha gave it to us straight. Why do the ancestors sing such a crooked tune? Well, I, I'm sure by now you have noticed that Zen masters over the many, many hundred of years, like to comment on comments on comments of uh, old cases. And sometimes in those comments, they are not very nice. You know? So-and-so overplayed his hand. All, all kinds. It's, it's a long, long-standing tradition. And looking at it from the just... Outside, it seems that, yeah, he just didn't like what he had to say. Others say, yeah, well, this is the way how you compliment, compliment each other in Zen. But it is actually much, much deeper. Much deeper. Soshi Zen is also what we practice here. We do read the sutras. And when we read it in English, we are catering to the aspect of Nyoraizen. The Buddha and Subhuti sitting right in front of us, being made present in a language that we understand, is an aspect of Nyoraizen, of understanding the teachings of the Tathagata. And then when we switch 
chanting in the transliterated version, suddenly all meaning goes out. Like that, because if you start thinking about it, with our wonderful Gyorin giving us a run for our money at times, <laughs> no time to think, just <laughs> wonderful. The practice of Soshi Zen. And when both is combined, after some time, you pick out, oh, yeah, there are some patterns in here. Does anyone recall any patterns that, that we have in, in there? Of syllables that repeat? Yeah, yeah. Hanya. Yeah, anokutara sam myakusambo daishin. That's also in the Hanya Shingyo, yeah? Toku is before that. Toku is to achieve. Anutara sambyak sambodhi. Anukutara sam myakusambodai. And who is the dude? Shubodai. Huh? That's Subhuti, Shubodai. And after Shubodai, you will often hear Oiyunga. Yeah? Shubodai Oiyunga. What do you think, Subhuti? That is the question of the Buddha, of the Buddha, Oiyunga. And the Buddha is Seson, Seson, Seson. So both types of Zen over time start to become one. And if we really are in the chanting 100%, we might reach Anukutara Samyakasambodai in that very moment the complete presence without being anywhere else, being fully awake, being fully Buddha. This transition happens slowly, and it happens to everyone. Let me remind you of Segen Ishin's famous saying about Zen practice. Segen Ishin lived in China in the Tang, in the Tang Dynasty in the 9th century. And here's the translation of what he said. You all know this. Before I had studied Zen for 30 years, I saw mountains as mountains and waters as waters. When I arrived at the more intimate knowledge, I came to the point where I saw the mountains are not mountains. And waters are not waters. But now that I have penetrated its very core, I am at rest. I am at peace. For it is just that I see mountains once again as mountains and waters once again as waters. Nyoraizen helps with that. Nyoraizen helps with the part of gaining intimate knowledge. Soshi Zen is that part that, cont that continuously helps us to penetrate its substance through our doings, 
through our sittings, with every breath we take. This has made it into America. Now, since I catered before to the younger generation, let me see if I cater, can cater to the a little more advanced generation in age. Who remembers Donovan? Yeah, yeah right. There was a song from 1967, and it's called There is a Mountain. Uh, can, you, can you sing it? Will you? First there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. It's a wonderful American distillation of what Sagan Ishin said in a full paragraph. Well, has Zen arrived in America or not? No, it has always been here. Now, for those who are more inclined to the more refined, uh, not so much Donovan, but T.S. Eliot, I have something for you too. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And so, from the beginning, through all we have to do to arrive home at where we began, realizing that we have never lacked any of it. So how can we bring this corn to a conclusion? This dynamism of Nyorai Zen, Tathagata Zen, the teachings of the Buddha, and Soshi Zen, the active Zen of the wordless, the unthinkable, but the actionable. This corn puts out the hook for us to believe it is meant somehow dualistically. The Buddha said it straight, but the ancestors, now they don't get it. They sing it crookedly. No, that's not what it is. Let's not get stuck in one of the oldest human traps that we always fall into. We might listen to what is being said here, and if we believe what is being said, we do not get to the point that we actually watch what is being done here. That is in so many places, yeah. It's a human trait. It's not just spiritually speaking that we like to uh, look at scripture and then think, yeah, we've got it. Look at what's going on in 
the civic realm of this country, what is being said, and while it's being said, what is being done. I will not do X, Y, Z, but um, it's gone. Same here, not getting stuck on it. It can be used positively or negatively. What we have to learn here is to look at function and not get caught up by the content. Function but content. So when we look at this koan from the point of view, why is it said that the Buddha said it straight? There is only one reason for it. What was the Buddha doing? He was exposing his own experience. He spoke from the authority of a realized Buddha. So what are the ancestors doing? If you compare it to what the Buddha has said, which is the product of his becoming an awakened person, we are already one degree away from actually following what the Buddha did. So what are the ancestors telling us with these means and ways of being irreverent, of shouting, of twisting noses, of saying, ah, we are outside of the scriptures. There is a transmission that is outside of that, pointing directly to the human heart. All just to tell us, we have to get there ourselves. That's what's happening here. That's why they sing crooked tunes for somebody who compares. And I will say a little bit about comparison after we have a short intermission. If you feel like Johnny is showing us what we all should be doing, if you feel stretching your limbs moving your head or doing anything that you feel you have to do to feel more comfortable. Now is the time. So the danger is if we say the straight, the Buddha said it straight, is that the declared teachings are it. That is a, an assumption. If we compare the non-declared teachings to the declared teachings, then we are in trouble. Comparison, measuring, is a very human thing to do. Even here, I mean, when I was a young monk, of course, we try to outsit each other. And sometimes we have to do that. I can guarantee you, 
even if you outsit your fellow brothers, sister, monks, nuns, lay practitioners, your legs will tell you that it's not a good idea. So the best way is to just not compare where comparison is not necessary. It is hard enough to have a sense of self that is dynamic. It becomes even harder when we introduce comparison to it. Comparison is good and measuring is good when it comes to measuring twice and cutting once in the physical realm. When measuring what we can do to improve some processes that will benefit a greater number of human beings. But when it comes to our substance as a human being, there is no measure that we should apply to ourselves and anyone else. The dualistic mind makes us, or we, we are prone to get into approaching these comparisons from a deficit point of view. We always easily see what's missing and what's, yeah, why do we see what's missing? Because we are so full of it, <laughs> right? Then we see what's missing there and it, we are, uh, tendencies to point it out. And in that same way, we tend to judge others for a lack for which they might be completely innocent of. They didn't ask for being that way. They did not have a choice to be that way in a way that we don't have a choice that, well, we were born somewhere to a specific person in a specific country at a specific time. And so to change that from a comparison and a deficit approach to the approach of fostering arrested development to start moving again is something that is in immensely important with ourselves, with the world, because otherwise the borders will become very clear, but they will become sharp and it is nothing else but divisive. Even somebody who we disagree with diametrically, it is our calling as a Zen practitioner, as a follower of the teachings of the Buddha, to find what we have in common. And there's a lot of things. And to make relationship on that level to be able to bring us forward together. And that, of course, asks from us to dismantle the stiffness of our identity, to dismantle, dismantle wherever we are caught up in any such comparison or competition. The Buddha was perfectly okay with his straight teaching. The songs that are crooked 
are the songs that have brought us here, are the songs that we have to sing. You have to sing your own song. And if someone else said it's crooked, I know you would like to go. But that's the deficit approach. <laughs> you say, oh, I'm sorry you don't like it. But can I offer you some tea? It's a good teaching. Ancestors, crooked tunes. You're an ancestor. You're an ancestor. You're all ancestors. So please, join the club of the crooked singers. And make this a place of heartfelt song that emerges out of the joy of having this fortune of a peak experience we call being born as a human being. I can't thank you enough for being here. With a, without community, without Sangha, this practice would not have formed. It would not be alive. So I would want to end this last Tesho of this retreat just by saying thank you. Thank you very much. Please come back. Please don't stop. Sing, even if you self-think, eh, that's pretty crooked. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.